over 2,000 years ago in a place called Golgotha in the city of Jerusalem, a man named Jesus was crucified on a tree. A tree that was grown and nourished by the very provision that he himself gave it, now cut and formed into a Roman cross. And on that cross, he died. And many people who followed him and listened to his teaching and were inspired by him and even made, as we will see today, um, major proclamations about who he was in this moment were dismayed, even though he told them it would happen. They thought he was going to bring peace to Israel, and he was now dead. And as final proof of this, a Roman soldier took a spear and put it into his side, and the Bible says that blood and water flowed out. And in our modern day, we know that this was evidence of something called a pericardial effusion, which is the, there was fluid surrounding the heart and the lungs due to the intense amount of stress and suffering that was put on his body. It was proof that the Son of God's heart had stopped beating. And he was buried and mourned by many who loved him. Confused by this, many of them were wondering what to do with themselves. But three days later, in the tomb where they laid him, his heart started beating again. And as Andrew Peterson beautifully wrote in one of his songs, his heart beats and his blood begins to flow waking up what was dead a moment ago, and his heart beats, and now everything is changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. His heart beats. And we would say, because his heart beats, we are here today, gathered together as his church. And we could even go so far as to say that because his heartbeats, or as his heart beats, so beats the heart of his church. I am humbled to be with you today and for the next few weeks on a topic of church, um, especially since I'm such a, a new member here among you. Uh, it's a really humbling thing to think about, um, but I look forward to this time walking through with you the biblical um, view of what the church is and why it's so important. Today, we're looking at the heart of the church. What is it that keeps us going? What is it that gives us life? What is it that makes the church of Jesus Christ something much more than just another social club or organization? What is that? So today, I want us to sort of hit on that, and I want to prepare you um, that this text that we're kind of resting on, we're going to lay some other ones over the top of it, um, so 
kind of Bible drilly type stuff might be happening. I apologize in advance for that. I just want to do my best to show you that these are not like just Colton's thoughts. Um, so I really want to rest on the word here. Um, but just be prepared. You might get rapid fired with some scripture uh, this morning. So as we begin our, our journey into what is the heart of the church, um, before we get to um, even, even the first section, I think it's vital, it's important for us to zoom in on something that I, that I think really is, is what makes the heart of the church exist. And that is something after Peter makes this confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus responds with flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I think we need to start there because we need to understand that the heart of the church, what makes us the people of God, is that we, collectively, our hearts have been quickened to life. We've had a resurrection experience of our own. There is something dramatic that happens to people who profess these sorts of words about Jesus. So right after Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus tells him he did not come to believe this because he was the most brilliant of all the disciples. He didn't say, Peter, guess what? Congratulations. You figured it out. You're the smartest. Let's all have, you know, whatever. Wine. I don't know. Whatever they were doing back then. That's not what happened. There was no, like, pat on the back. There was no, Peter, you're the best. It was, you're blessed. And why are you blessed? Because flesh and blood did not make this known to you. But it's something you have received from the Father in heaven. Something happened to augment his heart towards this belief. The Word of God and the new birth is what gets us to this sort of belief. The Word of God being revelation. This is what Jesus says. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You've received divine revelation. For us now, especially in the church age, we would say, um, not that it was any different back then, but we say we get this from the Word, from God's Word itself. It is God speaking, revealing to us who He is. But then we also know that something called the new birth happens or regeneration for the nerdy theological term. These things happen. This is what gets us to this belief, to this gift of faith, is the work of God in our hearts. And we see this in several places, but let the Bible drill commence here. Um, if we go back to some passages we've already walked through together as a church, in John chapter 3, Jesus encounters this man named Nicodemus, and I, I want to point out um, a couple of things that happen here. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, to get access to the kingdom of God, something must happen to us. It's not something that we force or that we make happen on our own, but there is this invitation by God, this prodding of our soul, this quickening of our hearts that can be described as nothing other than a miracle that God does. And Scripture informs us of this fact that we cannot get to Peter's good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We cannot get there apart from this revelation and this quickening that God does. This is what Paul would be talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. You don't have to turn there. You can just jot it down and quote it really quick. Um, But it's this saying that I remember when I was younger, I didn't understand why this even had to be said in there. But but it said, Paul, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He said, no one can profess, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, I remember as a child especially thinking, I think anybody could probably say that, and it, you know, they may not mean it. But that's exactly the point Paul is arguing. No one can actually, from their heart, profess this sort of faith, this genuine love for Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit doing something in their heart. So it's clear that it's, it's not just a, a magic word or a mantra or something that we say, and now oh, we're a Christian. We'll get to more of that later, but, but this is rather a, a result of the indwelling work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. And then I'm going to go to one other place to just quickly hit on what does this work look like? Ephesians chapter 2. Um, some of you guys, or most of you, I imagine, would be pretty familiar with this Um, But here's what the scripture says, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this gives us great reason for understanding why we need this revelation, this quickening so desperately. Because according to what the Scripture teaches us here, we, apart from that quickening, were spiritually dead. Enjoying and delighting in things opposed to our Creator and deserving His wrath. As a matter of fact, the Scripture in that Ephesians passage says we were actually following the prince of the power of the air. Now, I don't know about you, I've never thought of myself as a Satanist in the past. But the Scripture says that our natural inclination is actually to follow after the rebellion of the evil one. We may not cognitively like have joined the occult or something, but our actions, our heart's desires, formally were bent that way. We were going after him. So this spiritual death leaves us in great need of God to do something because our hearts were not inclined toward him. The biblical picture of God rescuing us is powerful because it involves this big shift, this resurrection that happens in a spiritual sense. God is rich in mercy and having great love for us. He made us alive. How does he do this? By grace, through faith. Undeserved, unmerited favor through faith. So God, who looked at us in our rebellion, instead of pouring out the full vent of his wrath, which he would have been just and right to do, decided instead to extend grace. To take something that was dead and make it alive again. To take someone who hated him and quicken their hearts so that when they look at him, they can see nothing but beauty and wonder and their soul's deepest need. This is the miracle that God does. And it stands in stark contrast to the teachings of the Pharisees that we see. If if we go back to Matthew 16... Right before our passage today, Jesus is warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. Which they're, they're kind of, you know, thick-skulled about it at first. They're like, what are you, you know, we need bread. What are you talking about? And he's like, no, I'm not, guys, I'm not talking about bread. And they get it. The teaching of the Pharisees. He warns them, don't follow after the teaching of the Pharisees. Why? Because the teaching of the Pharisees, from what we see in Scripture, would not affirm their need for this sort of awakening. Their teaching would have been, we just, we really have to do better. Try harder. Be better. 
And Jesus, as he plainly points out in the Sermon on the Mount, your best will never be good enough. Not to, not to reach or attain to the holiness and righteous standard of God. So he warns them that th- this is not the teaching you should follow, and then he gives them this reality that we need a revelation from the Father so that we might look not to ourselves, but with awe look on him for all of it. Now you might be asking, what does this have to do? Why is this so important in a practical sense, to the heart of the church? Why is this something we need to talk about, and and how can we practically work out why this is important? Well, one major thing that comes to mind is unregenerate church membership is kind of a big deal. As we think about what it means to be a church and the reason we have members of the church, Erica and I just recently walked through the membership class here, and it was rigorous and, and that's good. As we're, we're really walking through seeing, hey, we want to make sure that we are on the same page, that we affirm these same things. But I would say even with that, even if you make someone go through a year-long process, you cannot manufacture new life in the hearts of people. This is something God has to do. And that's why it's important we understand this as the church, how vital, how important it is that this new birth happen to us. Now, unregenerate church membership can be um, the cause of lots of unnecessary conflict and pain and lots of issues that arise out of that. And I'm not saying that regenerate church members don't do that. We're still sinners, right? I acknowledge that, but unregenerate church membership can lead to this mass confusion because we haven't really been born again. I just want to urge you really quick in this moment, friend, if you're listening to this and you're a church member or a regular attender who has been involved in maybe this church or multiple churches for a long time in your life, but inside you know in your heart of hearts You've never really received true life. I want to urge you to behold Jesus and believe this morning. He may have been held up to you time and time and time again, and you've, you've seen the gospel presented to you over and over, and you've kind of joined the club, but your heart's never been changed. Now, that's not something I can do for you or anyone here can do for you, but what we can do is hold him up to you once more. Look to Jesus, repent of your sins, and believe he is rich in mercy. There's like, and I think this might be something that comes to mind. If if you're one of those people who's like, yeah, I've been going to church all my life, and maybe you're sitting here and it's like, well, but I know I'm not really on the team. Maybe you're embarrassed to come out. Maybe it'd be like, hey, I've been doing this so long, if people found out I just now have received new life, that might be kind of, listen, I promise you one thing, there would be nothing but rejoicing and thanksgiving among God's people. So I implore you, put him before you today, believe in him. The heart of the church, specifically the hearts of all its members, must be quickened to life. 
Secondly, the heartbeat of the church, and this is where we get to Peter's confession, the heartbeat of the church confesses Jesus as the Son of God. Peter's confession here, being empowered by revelation from the Father, identifies Jesus in two ways. So now that we see there's something that's been revealed to Peter, here's what he says, that Jesus, first of all, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Savior whom Israel had been waiting for to bring consolation to them as seen in the prophets. This harkens back to the answers from the others about Jesus um, that we see in the beginning of this passage, that he was a prophet, or he was one of the prophets, or maybe he's John the Baptist, or Jeremiah, or what. But in reality, he is the one of whom all of those guys spoke about. He's the fulfillment. He is the substance, not the shadow. And Peter confesses this, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Savior. And then he adds this, the Son of the living God. This is another level, acknowledging the deity and supremacy of Christ. You are both Lord and God. You are both Savior and Son. This confession is huge. It's a big deal. So much so that Peter gets a new name out of the deal. Okay, now there's debate on this because you can see Peter is called Peter before we get to this passage. Who knows? You know, maybe this is Jesus saying, That's why I called you that. But here we get the reason, right? Jesus says, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. You're blessed for this good confession that has come out of you. Flesh and blood is not revealed to this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. These are the words of Jesus. Now this passage, if, if you follow any sort of different theological traditions or you're kind of getting nerdy about stuff like this, you might know this is a kind of controversial one. This is where Roman Catholics get their idea that Peter is the vicar of Christ. And they interpret it that way, that he's literally talking about Peter is the guy. He's going to take Jesus' place as the head of the church. As Protestants, we would reject that. Lovingly, I might add. But one of the things is when we look at this passage, we, it helps us, I think, to break down the language a, a little bit. Because when he says, your name is Peter, this is the Greek Petros. It just means rock, okay? Your name is rock. <laughs> and then Jesus says, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Petra also means rock, but it means bedrock, foundation, what's holding everything together, okay? So your rock and on this bedrock, I will build my church. My dad, I remember as a child, preaching on this very passage, and he used to say, Peter's like Little Rock. And then his belief that he professes here is Big Rock. <laughs> bedrock, foundation. Okay? So Little Rock, Bedrock, Big Rock. Okay? 
It's not merely the person of Peter that Jesus is talking about. Now, there's no denying Peter is very important to this passage, but it's not merely the person of Peter, but also the faith that is exhibited by Peter, the confession that is poured out by Peter here, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says something that I, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me because of, I don't think I've ever preached on this passage before, but I've never thought through this next statement. When, when Jesus says to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Now, if you actually think about what gates do, I have never been advanced upon by gates. I've never had gates attack me. <laughs> I've definitely had gates deter me, especially when they have like no, tre- or what is it, the signs that say, you know, we don't call 911 and it's got the gun and the, yeah, that definitely <laughs> deters me. But the gates themselves have never done me any harm, Right? So why does Jesus use this analogy? Why does he say the gates of hell? Well, the Greek word here again, this is Hades, or in the Hebrew it would have been akin to something like Sheol. Okay? And he's simply talking about death. Death and the grave. And he says, death, the gates of death will not prevail against my church. See, his emphasis is on the eternality of his church. The last, the staying power, if you will. Nothing in this life or the next can defeat or swallow up what Christ has built. Eternal life is guaranteed for the church as a body, for its individual members, and as a whole. The church will prevail. It will continue. It will last. Now, much of the things that Jesus says here and that we see in Peter's confession here is backed up by his buddy John in the epistle, 1 John. And I'm just going to rapid fire some things he says just to kind of solidify some of this. Um, 1 John 5.1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 1 John 5, 5, he says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then lastly, 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, he says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe... God has made him, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gives us eternal life and this life is in his son. And last, the, the last little verse here, one of my favorites, it doesn't get much more simple than this. Cookies on the bottom shelf for us all, right? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very simple. These things are vital. They're important. This is what makes the church the church. This is what our heartbeat looks like. This continued confession that Jesus is who he said he was. As a matter of fact, 
One of my favorite old dead guys to read on this subject had something, I think, very good to say about it. He said this. This is Matthew Henry. And he said, if Christ be not the Son of God, Christianity is a cheat, and the church is a mere chimera. Take away the faith and confession of this truth from any particular church, and it ceases to be a part of Christ's church and relapses to the state and character of infidelity. This is vitally important to what it means to be a Christian church. Now, when we think about this practically, I really think the emphasis from this passage is this, that we would never get over the person of Jesus Christ. That we would not be bored with him, and if we are, that we would repent. It can be so tempting for churches to try and identify themselves by their most obscure theological positions, right? We are this kind of church because we believe this, right? And when I say it, I'm not, I'm not talking about like some sort of weird outside of orthodoxy. I'm saying we're going to identify our church as the church that believes this about the end times. Or we're going to identify our church as the church that believes this about baptism. Okay? Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm saying that is not what upholds the heart of the church. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, it can be so tempting for a church to identify with the culture that is most popular around it. Well, we're the church that gives away free iPads every summer. Or we're the church who has the most outrageous VBS you've ever seen in your life. It's so tempting to veer into those lanes as if that is what makes us a church. It's so tempting to veer into those lanes as if this is where we want people to come. They want, we want people to come because they know this about our church, rather than we want people to come because we want them to know Christ. We want people to come because what we, what we want to attract them with is not how smart we are, or our theological nuances, or all the cool things we might be able to do and give them. We want people to come and see Jesus in all of his splendor. May we never get over the person of Jesus Christ. The heart of the church is in this confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And this is why we remind ourselves of the gospel week in and week out. Because it's what gives us life as God's people. There's nothing else. If we lose the heart of the gospel, we are veering off into dangerous territory. Lastly, what I want to speak to you about is that the heart of the church is also sustained by the head of the church. And here's a hint. The head of the church is not Peter. The head of the church is Jesus himself. He is the great shepherd, the good shepherd. He is the one in whom we are all under the authority of. 
Now, Peter, at this moment, and I, just for transparency's sake, this is why I bring this point out. At this moment, we look at Peter and we think, man, this is awesome. He gets it, and it's all of God. It's grace. Amen. Yes. But is Peter now perfectly sanctified? No. Not even close. How do I know this? The very next paragraph, Jesus begins sharing with his disciples the reality of his death. That he was, and he actually shares both of these things. I have to suffer and die, and I will be resurrected. He shares all these things with them. And Peter pipes up with all of his wisdom and says, I'm never going to let that happen to you, Jesus. Not going to happen. Now, we can only guess his motivation because the Scripture doesn't tell us, but my guess would be his motivation is out of love for Jesus. My guess would be he loves Jesus. He doesn't want to think about Jesus dying. That just doesn't make sense to him yet. But nonetheless, Jesus rebukes Peter with what I can see is is one of the most harshest rebukes I've ever seen in Scripture. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I, I, I think sometimes we get so removed from this because we are living in this post-resurrection age. But can you imagine the one whom you love, adore, and worship giving you such a stern rebuke? Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Now, apparently, you know, Peter had thick skin, because I don't know if you've read the rest of the book, but he turns out okay in the end. But he receives this rebuke from Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me, and you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This reveals two things about Jesus and this rebuke. Jesus was serious and determined to fulfill his mission with perfect obedience. This is really his driver. Jesus was on a mission to the cross. It wasn't an option. It wasn't a maybe I'll get this done, but it was a mission to be accomplished, and he was serious about that mission. Next, Peter, and this is really what's most pertinent to us today, though a true disciple and a true believer needed further sanctification. He didn't grasp all of it yet. He had received divine revelation. God had done a miracle in revealing these truths to him. But he still needed to be sanctified. Something uh, just throughout this past week, Pastor Graham and I got coffee as we talked through the sermon, and something that just rolled out of his mouth that I wrote down verbatim, so I'm sorry, I'm just going to quote Pastor Graham here. But I just thought it was excellent the way he worded this. He said, Jesus can affirm the confession, and then discipline the confessor. He can affirm Peter's confession earlier. You're you're right. But then he also has the authority to discipline the confessor. And the confession is true, but the confessor is in need of constant sanctification. As the church, what keeps us going is the work of Christ in us. You see, we don't merely make this confession and then we're good from here on out and we don't give it another thought. 
We're not punching the ticket to get out of hell, and then we just, you know, kind of put it in our pocket or even toss it away and just don't think about it again. That's not what this salvation thing looks like. But it's a continued, daily walking with Christ. Now, we believe in this confession, right? Romans chapter 10, you guys have probably heard this before, right? This idea of we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart God raised him from the dead and we'll be saved. We, we affirm that, yes and amen. This is true. But it's not meant to lead us to some sort of easy believism where we just say some words, go on about our lives, and then hope it all works out in the end because we said that thing. As a matter of fact, if you were to zoom out and read the rest of Romans, you would see Paul over and over and over again saying, don't do that, that's moronic. Doesn't make sense. We're not teaching some sort of easy believism. We're teaching a life that has been transformed. So we need this sanctification process. The heart of the church you can think of it like this, is in constant need of cardiovascular exercise. Okay? We need this sort of sanctification. And we look to the head of the church, Jesus himself, to train us and strengthen us. He does this by the Holy Spirit and by the Word. You might think, well, what's some practical ways that we can do that? What's some practical ways that we can be sanctified? Sanctification is kind of a hairy topic because it does take effort on our part, but yet it is still all of God. It takes us practicing spiritual disciplines, and yet it is still all the work of the Spirit of God in us. We see that from Philippians chapter 2, where we get those, those two things that seem to, to not work, but the Bible says they work. Scripture says we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Take this seriously. Work hard at it. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and work for his good purposes. So the beauty part of, of this sanctification, of this being made more and more like Jesus, is it's hard, but it is empowered. It is work, it is discipline, but it's never our own strength behind it. We're not all of a sudden converting over to, well, now we, we believe we're justified by works. That's not what we're saying. But rather, we are trusting and hoping and believing in the work of Jesus day in and day out. Spiritual disciplines like prayer, Bible reading, fasting, and many others, they, they help us. And they help us work out the salvation with fear and trembling. We are so blessed and fortunate to have English understandable copies of God's Word readily available to us. That, understand what a gift that is. And we're able to daily walk with our God. All this together, we would say, the heart of the church is the power of God 
producing in his people the true confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Christian believer, I want you to remember that the foundation on which we stand is the simple truth. Jesus is the Son of God. All of our theology, community, mission, and hope, which we will talk about throughout this little stint of time I get to spend with you guys, all of that is like blood being pumped through the life of the church from this heart, from this belief, from this confession. Really, we could just simply say, from Jesus himself. That he truly is who he says he is. He is God in the flesh, sent from heaven to live and die in our place so that our sins would be forgiven and the wrath of God that we deserve would be fully satisfied by his sacrifice. And he rose from the grave three days later to show that he truly is the Son of God. His believing people are truly forgiven and made right in his sight. This is the work of Christ. Now maybe you have wandered in here, or maybe just from earlier, as I mentioned, maybe you have never truly received this beautiful gift of the gospel. In this passage we've looked at today, I would wager, I think it demands that you do something with the person of Jesus. It demands that you, it calls you to make a decision about who he is, to think through and respond to who is Jesus. This makes me think of a, one of my favorite writers. You may have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia before, right? But something C.S. Lewis once said about this very issue, what do we do with Jesus? You see, maybe you're here and you have good thoughts about Christ as a teacher, He's a good teacher. He was a good guy. He was a decent person, and they killed him, and that was sad, but that's kind of where you stop. The Bible teaches us that such views of Jesus are just not high enough. And C.S. Lewis would write this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying really foolish things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be not a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. 
If you've not put your faith in that today, I just want to lift him up to you and say, decide who he is. And as we've seen before, man, if your heart has been pricked today and you're already are no, like acknowledging he is God, that's a miracle that has happened in your heart today. You didn't come up with that on your own. And if you walk out of here still unconvinced, I urge you, keep coming back to this place. Keep putting this Jesus before you. It's worthwhile. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your church. We thank you for how you keep us as your people alive, functioning, We thank you for this gospel that holds all things together. That Jesus is the Son of God. And Lord, we pray in the coming weeks as we talk about the church. Lord, that we would be both challenged in ways that the Bible challenges, but that we would also remember how loved we are as your people. We remember that the Scripture teaches us that marriage itself is a picture of this church. That just as a husband is to love his wife and give himself up for her, that Christ loved the church and died for her. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, as a people that you have sought out bought with your blood, covered with your clean garments, and pronounced us good and righteous in your sight because of your work. We pray that we would remember that today, this Lord's Day, as we spend the rest of our time and just be thankful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.